All right, week two of our series through the book of Job called If God is Good. And uh, we're looking at, we're going to answer the question, um, this question among many other questions through this series, how can there be a good God and still there be all this suffering and evil in the world? Now, it's going to take us the whole series to kind of address that. We're going to work our way through most of the chapters. We won't cover it, as I mentioned last week, uh, verse by verse, but we're going to spend at least 12 or 14 weeks in uh, this book. Job is one of the better known characters of the Bible. In fact, you may hear someone who maybe never has even read the Bible, doesn't know the Bible, and doesn't even know the story of Job. Say something like, uh, that man had the patience of Job, or I'm going to need the patience of Job to deal with these children today. Uh, You probably heard people say something about the patience of Job. The fact that Job uh, endured such suffering and, and, and kept his faith in the living God uh, without sort of turning his back on God is common knowledge, even if uh, the point of the story is not so well understood. Uh, last week, we, we introduced the book by looking at Job, who he was. Job was a, a very prominent and wealthy man who lived in the ancient Near Eastern town of Uz, the region of Uz, uh, which is what we now know as, as Jordan. And uh, he was well-respected in his community. He was, he was well-known. He was a person. He was called, in fact, in, in the first chapter of Job as the greatest man in the East. And by East, it's really talking about the whole developed world at that time. So he was one of, if not the greatest man in all the world. He was blessed richly by God, not because he was perfect. He wasn't perfect. Uh, not because he was inherently good. He wasn't inherently good. He wasn't good to the core of his being, but he was blessed by God because God is a gracious God. And so God richly blesses this man, Job. And, and partly, as we saw last week, as a testimony or as evidence of God's continued redemptive activity. God is in the business of transforming lives, bringing people to saving faith in His Son and and enabling them to obey Him and to worship Him. And Job was exhibit A of God's redemptive activity. But we shouldn't conclude, and certainly if you know the story, you haven't concluded that just because Job was so blessed that he didn't suffer. Actually, uh, to the contrary, Job suffered in a way that I think it's fair to say 99.9999% 99.9999% of people never will. I mean, his, his suffering is just incredible what he goes through. We're going to see part of that in just a minute. But what's, what's just as striking, at least to me, as well as the suffering of Job, is the response of Job, the reaction to Job to his suffering. We're going to see it in just a minute. We're, and we read that. We, we can't help but ask, how can a person respond that way given all that he's been through? I mean, how is it even possible for someone to go through all that Job goes through and then respond the way that he does? Maybe to ask it a different way, what did Job know that we need to know in order to deal with our own suffering and our own setbacks? Uh, What insights did Job possess that enabled him to respond the way that he did. There are four that we're going to see in the passage this morning. So as we get into it, we're going to cover Job 1, 13 through 22, and we're going to see four insights that Job demonstrates that we certainly can apply that uh, will ena- enable us to, to deal with and to handle our own suffering. Now, these insights won't make our suffering easier. Uh, they, they won't make our suffering go away, and they won't take away the pain, but they will give us, I think, perspective and even hope 
uh, both of which are essential when we suffer. And so Job chapter 1, let me read. I'm just going to read the whole thing. It's uh, 13 through 22. It's kind of one uh, clean section. So here reads the word of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters, of course Job's sons and daughters, were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped, to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped, to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. I think we would all agree this is one of the most devastating accounts uh, that you'll ever read in any type of literature any genre of literature, Christian or, or non-Christian, this is one of the most devastating things we can ever read. God gives Satan permission to take from Job whatever he wants, and Satan takes everything, literally. First of all, Job's oxen and donkeys and servants, and Satan uses means to accomplish his plan. While Job's children are partying and feasting at one of those moments where they have to be thinking, how could life get any better than this? They're all together as siblings. They're enjoying their life. They're having a great party. And Satan mobilizes the Sabaeans, a, a group of nomads from southern Arabia, the kingdom of Sheba. You might remember the, 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 king, the, Sheba, the queen of Sheba uh, would, would later consult uh, Solomon for his wisdom. And so here these, uh, these raiders come. They take Job, Job's oxen and donkeys. They kill his servants by the sword. And one escapes to inform Job about it. And as Job hears this, and he's still processing this, this incredible loss, essentially his livelihood, that lone survivor tells him that fire from heaven, a lightning storm, caused the sheep to catch on fire, as well as the shepherds watching them, and consumed all of them. They were all burned to death. Only one person survived in this. And then, as if that weren't enough, while he was still getting debriefed on this unspeakable tragedy, the single survivor tells Job that the Chaldeans, uh, ruthless invaders from southern Mesopotamia, formed three military groups and stole Job's camels and killed his remaining servants. And finally, as the greatest blow yet by a long shot, a messenger arrives telling Job that a whirlwind formed unexpectedly and caused the house to drop where Job's ten children were staying. And now they're all dead. All of Job's children are dead. 
Now, where do we even begin to describe or, or, or to make sense of what Job must have felt? What words could possibly express the devastation and the heartbreak that he feels? I mean, imagine losing a child. And some of you, I know you don't have to imagine because you've been there. Imagine losing a child. Think, is there anything that could be worse? Well, maybe the only thing that could be worse than losing a child is losing all your children at one time. To a tragedy, I mean, I don't, I mean how do we even, even make sense of this? Where do we even begin to try to, to understand this and what Job must have been feeling? Have you ever had someone say who's gone through a, a terrible tragedy, maybe the loss of a job, or uh, they lost all their finances to a bad investment, or they lost their home, they say something like, well, the most important thing is you still have your family. And that is comforting. But Job didn't even have his family. His kids have all been killed in a tragic storm. I was trying to think in terms of personally anything that I, you know, to relate, not my own personal experience, but anything that I've been aware of or that could even possibly relate to this. And the only thing I could think of in terms of a contemporary situation um, was the story of Scott and Janet Willis. Scott was a public school teacher in Chicago in the mid-1990s, and uh, he and his wife both really working involved in the community, involved in their church, and they had six kids. And they had been planning this vacation for a long time to go up north, and, and so the, the day finally arrived. They were done with school. They put all their six kids in their minivan. Uh, they filled up the minivan with gas, and they headed up north on the I-94 toward uh, Milwaukee. And they hadn't gone very far when they ran into, ran into a large metal object that was in, on the freeway that caused the rear uh, gas tank to, to immediately explode, and five of their six kids were killed instantly, just in a heartbeat, gone. And now, you would think, how could that get even worse? Well, it got worse when they realized that uh, the person who, who had been carrying in his truck the, the large object that fell had gotten his license uh, illegally by way of uh, a scheme with the then-governor, George Ryan. And that same driver had been warned repeatedly before he took the road uh, that that metal, large piece of metal in his truck was unstable and, and would surely fall out. But he ignored it. And, and here to the Willises, in this senseless, they make no sense of it all. They lost five of their six children in just a millisecond. Complete ruin. This is what something like what Job suffered. Now, there are two clues that the author gives, or more than that, but two main clues uh, that reveal to the original participants in this story that this is not just bad luck, so to speak, that this has not been even a natural disaster, but that there's something supernatural behind this. One clue is the fact that the house that Job's kids were partying in was blown down, we're told, from every side. The wind struck, verse 19, all four corners. Now, there was a wind uh, in that time in Job's region that would blow out of, blow out of the southeast. It was called a, cam, a kamzin, uh, which is Arabic. It just means 50, and it, it was a wind that would blow for some 50 days, a southeastern wind. Um, but it was not a circular wind, and it generally did not have that sort of power or force that would cause all four corners of a house to collapse. This was not natural. This was supernatural. 
And that was a clue to the original participants. And a second clue that this was not normal is a phrase repeated to us three times, while he was yet speaking. So one messenger comes with tragic news, and while he was yet speaking, here comes another, and while he was yet speaking, here comes another, and a third time, while he was yet speaking, here comes another. This strange and really almost unbelievable timing was meant to reveal to Job and all who knew him that this was not a series of bad accidents. This was indeed supernatural. Someone or something was behind this. One theologian says, such an overwhelming series of calamities falling upon a single individual all in one day could not but strike those who heard of them as abnormal and almost certainly supernatural. In other words, for, for reasons totally inexplicable and, and undecipherable to the human mind, in some way, God was behind this. That's what Job's friends concluded. That's what Job concluded. So how does Job respond? And what what insights does he possess that would allow him to respond the way he did? Well, look at verse 20 again. Then Job arose and tore his clothes and shaved his head, tore his robe and shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshiped. So here's the first insight that Job had that enabled him to react the way that he did. It's our first point. Job knew that worship and lament are not incompatible responses to suffering and loss. What's the first thing that Job did when he got this sickening news? He grieved viscerally. Tearing his clothes was a sign of bereavement. Wealthy men wore robes over their tunic and And Job shreds his as an emotional, raw response, but also a gesture of grief. One of our boys, when he was little, he wasn't really good at coping with not getting what he wanted. And when things, when he didn't get what he wanted and he was really upset about it, he would run his fingers through his hair just frantically and he would pull on the neck of his shirt. And um, he just would pull on it so it was all stretched out. Remember, putting some shirts away, thinking, I don't remember getting my son a bunch of V-necks, um, but this is just because he had ruined so many shirts, just pulling them. It was raw emotion that he had a hard time containing. That's part of what's going on here. I mean, there, there, there's this raw, visceral, emotional response that Job has. But it's also actually a demonstration of grief so that others would know uh, that Job is, in fact, grie- grieving. Tearing your clothes was a gesture of profound grief. Likewise, shaving one's head. Well, you've heard me say today, today it's a sign of strength and beauty. Um, It was in the ancient time, I got a lot of mileage out of that, by the way. Uh, It was an ancient sign of mourning, particularly in, in Mesopotamia. Job is crushed. He grieves deeply. And God and God says, in all of this, Job did not sin. Now, why is this a valuable insight? Why does this matter? Well, I think it's important for us to know it's a very Christian and God-honoring thing to mourn, to grieve. I can't tell you the number of times I've officiated a funeral, a memorial service, and, and someone has, this has happened so many times, I really don't, I couldn't tell you the number. Someone has come up to me and apologized for crying. I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I don't know why I'm crying. As if crying or mourning or feeling loss is somehow dishonoring to God. 
But this is not the case at all. There's nothing ungodly about mourning. There's nothing faithless about grieving. We should grieve. We should mourn. Jesus grieved. Jesus mourned. It's a necessary human response. Where we get into trouble is when we, we fail to properly mourn. When we act like everything is good, I'm fine, everything is great, but in reality it isn't. Or we tell ourselves, I need to be strong, or even I need to be strong for so-and-so. I need to be strong for my kids and not allow them to see me cry. And I totally understand that. And I know it comes from a heart that wants to help and a heart that wants to protect. But the strongest thing you can do and the most helpful thing you can do is to let your children and your friends see you mourn. There is no strength like transparency in our grief. It's not strong to pretend like, oh, I'm, I'm amazing right now. I'm just doing so well when, in fact, we're doing horribly. True strength is displayed in your transparency, in your dependence, so that your friends and your kids know you are depending on someone else. Lament, as we saw in our Advent series, is, is a very neglected uh, Christian practice. It's a real, raw reaction to our suffering. It is even complaining about the pain and the injustice that we see in the world and even we experience in our own lives. Job mourned, and then he worshiped God. And then we're going to see again, later he lamented. So there, there was this rhythm. He was mourning, he was grieving, he was worshiping, he was lamenting. But again, how did he get there? How did he get to that point of worship? I mean, don't we have to ask the question, what went through Job's mind? What was it that prompted Job to worship God? What was it that moved him to praise the living God? I look at the first part of verse 21 again. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. Job came into the world with nothing, he says, and he will leave the world with nothing. He knows, as the bumper sticker says, you can't take it with you. And this changes Job's perspective in the middle of his grief. Here's that second insight that comforts Job. Material prosperity is fleeting. Neither our hopes nor happiness can be tied to our possessions. Material prosperity, it's fleeting. Money comes and goes. And, and even if you, we hold on to it for, the, for our entire lives and the trajectory of your financial picture is just up, up, and always up, when you die, you still can't take it with you. When we leave, we leave it behind. It cannot accompany us and it cannot save us. I have a friend in Southern California who, um, in 2006, he had a house of praise that he had purchased in 2002. And he was shocked to find out that the house that he purchased for 350000 was now worth 550000 And so here it is, it's 2006, and he's all excited and, and you know, unwisely, which you know, he would later realize, but he decided to, uh, to refinance his house for the full amount that it was worth or praised at, and he used that 200 just to buy stuff. He got a motorhome, um, he put a pool in his backyard, uh, he bought all kinds of toys and uh, took a lavish vacation and, and so on. Well, you know what happened after 2006, 2007. And at the end of 2007, uh, really the early part of 2008, we saw... Uh, the greatest crash in terms of real estate values that we'd seen in 
you know, I don't know how many hundreds of years or whatever it was. And so his house went from 350 to 550 to 250. And he was just devastated. So he had a $550,000 mortgage on a house that was worth less than half of that. And, and all that money was gone because he'd spent it. And so he had this, he said, he had this moment in his life where he had this time of grieving. And of course, you know, he beat himself up a thousand times. How could I do something so stupid? But he said, one of the things that the Lord taught him as it took him 10 plus years to climb out of that bad financial situation is that he really was hoping in and resting in his financial situation. That's really what he was putting his trust in. And, and I'm sure none of you, or at least very few of you, have made such a foolish decision. Um, but it's easy for us to look at our financial picture and be confident when things go well, but uh, be broken or anxious when things go poorly. I was talking to a man recently, not part of our church, um, who told me that he, he had a philosophical conviction that he never gave money away. Not to organizations, not to a church, not to any cause. He said it just didn't make sense to him as he, as he crunched the numbers. just couldn't understand how it, could, how it could work that way. So he never gave money away. And I said to him, I said, it sounds to me, if I can be so bold, that money has become your God. Money is your God. You're trusting in it for your future. You're trusting in it to save you. But what are you going to do when you encounter a problem that money can't fix? And what are you going to do if one day your money disappears? Job knew that money could not save him. And this is why he, he this is an insight that he had that enabled him to respond the way that he did. He wasn't devastated uh, when he lost in such a way that he could no longer worship God. Now, look at verse the 21b, the second part of verse 21. Job says, the Lord gave... And the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Job gets a little more specific um, as to his rationale here or, or the way he responded, why he responded the way he did. Job knows that the good things he has and the good that he's experienced is from the hand of God. But he also knows that all the bad things he's experienced are also part of God's sovereign plan for him. They're part of God's providence. So here's our third insight that Job had that I think is so helpful for us. Everything we have and experience is from the hand of God, evidence of his mysterious and divine providence. Now, we just had a catechism and we, we recited together something of, of God's providence. The doctrine of God's providence is one of the most beautiful doctrines of the Bible. It's one of the most prevalent doctrines of the Bible. We see it all throughout the Old Testament and it's just as clear in the New Testament. Um, you see in the word providence, you don't see it in front of you, or maybe you do, you do. Uh, in the word providence, the word provide. Uh, providence is a word that describes the way that God constantly and lovingly provides for His people. It's not some cold and sterile doctrine, but incredibly comforting for the believer, knowing that everything that we have and everything that we experience, everything that we go through, good and bad, it's all from the hand of a sovereign God. God is always working for the good of His people and the glory of His name, giving His people everything they need for them to persevere and ultimately thrive. 
The Heidelberg Catechism, here's another catechism that has been well used, says it this way, God's providence is His almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with His hand, He still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them, that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things, come to us not by chance, but by His fatherly hand. Job knows the good that I've experienced. It's from the hand of God. The bad that I've just now experienced in some way that I can't get my mind around, it too is from the hand of God. In a mysterious way that only God knows and we can't see, the bad that we experience is also part of God's providential care for us. Job recognized that even the evil that happens to us is part of God's sovereign plan for us. God's providence, how He provides for His people, is governed by His sovereignty. Providence and sovereignty are not exactly the same. They're related. Um, it's a bit oversimplistic, uh, but we could look at it this way. Sovereign is who God is over His creation. So that's positional and governing providence is what God does for His creation. That's action. But the two work together in, in beautiful harmony. We talk about God's sovereignty a lot around here because it's all throughout the Scriptures and the whole story of the Bible is the story of God sovereignly bringing about His plan to, to save and redeem a, a sin-cursed world. Um, and sometimes, though, we talk about God's sovereignty, we think only the good stuff is part of God's sovereign design. And the evil stuff is outside of God's plan somehow. That God has no control over. But that's not true. God is actually sovereign over everything. Nothing happens outside of God's sovereign plan. Not even evil. And this is meant to comfort us. There's nothing in your life that has happened to you that is random. There's nothing that you've gone through that is sort of happenstance or, or, or bad luck. There's no event in your life that has ever surprised God or been outside of His sovereign plan for you. Even the evil committed against you is not by happenstance. It is all mysteriously part of God's infinitely wise and sovereign plan by which He governs the universe and everything in it and brings good to His own. I think maybe one of the most famous and clear summaries of this is the story of Joseph. As you recall, Joseph sold into slavery by his own brothers. Uh, left to die by his own brothers, and yet somehow he ascends up the ranks and becomes kind of the prime uh, minister in Egypt and ends up saving uh, uh, thousands of people and even his own family. And, and as Job reflects back on that, he says famously, you meant it for evil, but the Lord meant it for good. Talking about there the, the, that beautiful, mysterious aspect of God's sovereignty. It's, that is a beautiful description uh, for everything that happens in the life of the believer. You know, even though uh, someone else may mean it for evil, Satan may mean it for evil, and in some way God is working about good. Now, Joseph is a great example, but the best example that God's sovereignty included acts of evil for the good of His people is the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus. The Apostle Paul in the book of Acts says it this way, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified 
and killed by the hands of lawless men. So Paul says to the religious leaders and those around them, you did this. You're the ones who did this. And yet, it was God's plan all along in order that he might save and redeem a people back to himself. God's sovereign plan was for his son to die, to be killed, in order to provide salvation for his own. See, we were created to glorify and honor and enjoy God. We were created to enjoy fellowship with God. Our first parents put in this beautiful, pristine garden, Adam and Eve, created to, to walk with God. And we, we know they enjoyed sweet fellowship with God. The text tells us they walk with God in the cool of the day. They enjoy the very presence and fellowship of God. We were put on the earth to, to worship and glorify and o- obey God. But we have failed to do that miserably. We have gone our own way. We live by our own wisdom. We give our hearts to other endeavors. We make little room for the God who created us. We have completely and totally failed to keep God's perfect law. And that's what he requires, perfection. Not a valiant effort, not uh, getting better day by day, not sincerity, perfection is what God requires. And we have failed to do the very thing that God put us on the earth to do, worship and honor him alone. One old-time theologian put it this way, sin is not simply doing bad things, but rather a failure of vocation. This means you're not doing what you were made to do. We have not worshiped rightly, nor have we rightly reflected God's love into the world. And as a result, we're under God's condemnation if we're not in Christ. And God could have, of course, just left us to perish in that state and then suffer His eternal wrath because of our disobedience. But He didn't. God sent His Son to to bear the wrath that we rightly deserve. God sent His Son to to actually fully obey all of God's commands in our place. What theologians call the the active righteousness. is active obedience, passive obedience. That is to say, Christ lived perfectly and sinlessly for us, and He died for us so that we could be reconciled to God. And even the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus, we could say the greatest act of evil of all time, The murder of a perfect and sinless man was part of God's sovereign plan. Even the evilest act ever committed, the brutal murder of the only perfect person to ever live, God in the flesh was sovereignly ordained by God out of love for us. So Job's comfort was that both the good and the bad are from the hand of God. We can't accept the one without the other. I'm reading this book by John Piper called Providence. I know a couple of you uh, are as well. It's a massive, I don't know, 800 pages or something. And I just take it, I just read eight or 10 pages at a time. Um, But it's really good. And one of the points that Piper makes is, I I thought, just fits so well with this Job study. And he said, "We're we're quick to blame God when things go poorly. So we recognize God's providence in the bad things, but we're very slow to recognize or praise Him when things go well. We believe in God's providence when things go badly, but we don't seem to recognize it when things go well. We are selective subscribers to God's providence. Here's what Piper says. If there is a storm at sea and an ocean liner is sunk, or if a hazardous weather condition brings down a commercial airliner and lives are lost, there is often an outcry 
both publicly and in the personal grief of family members about the failure of God to prevent this disaster. Where was God? Intense grief is real and painful and understandable from all who experience loss in these disasters. But where is the corresponding emotional intensity, or even mild recognition, Piper says, of God's providence when 100,000 airplanes land safely every day? Where is the incessant chorus of amazement and thanks that today God provided 10 million mechanical and natural and personal factors to conspire perfectly to keep these planes in the air and bring them to their desired destination safely, and most of them carrying people who neglect and demean God every day. The point being, we can't be selective in our belief of God's providence. We can't blame God for the bad in our lives, but fail to credit Him for the good in our lives. A better understanding, and one that, an insight that fueled Job's response, is that both good and bad come from, from God's hand, and somehow they are for our benefit, even if we don't understand it. Job knew that the good was from God. He said, what did he say? The Lord gave. But he also knew that the bad was from God. He said, the Lord has taken away. All ultimately part of God's sovereign design for our good. You can't take the good as being from God and not accept that the bad is part of His providential hand as well. Now, there's one other realization, one other insight that Job had that enabled him to respond with worship to God and and even hope after losing everything, his very livelihood, and most importantly, his own family. There was one other insight that really buoyed him, that carried him along. I mentioned last week that this is one sort of complete story, bookended with a prologue and an epilogue, but it all fits into a bigger story. And that last insight is not directly from this particular section, um, but I, we see that it, it really sustained Job throughout. In fact, Job would say in a conversation with one of his friends in chapter 19, a little further into the book, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. For Job, this life was not all there is. There was something else in store for him because of his relationship with the living God. And that something else was the resurrection of the dead. And on that day of resurrection, Job knows for certain there will be final justice. Here's our final insight this morning, our final point. All who belong to God will be resurrected to enjoy Christ and each other forever. The greatest joy is that we will be with Christ forever, the one who gave his own life for us, so that by believing in him, we could be forgiven of our sins. We will be with him forever, and we will enjoy his fellowship forever. That's the greatest thing to look forward to. But not to be ignored is the fact that we will be with each other as well, with all those who are in Christ. Think of how that had to encourage Job. I mean, what else could have helped him at all? Imagine if he thought, and I just, I don't know what I was reading, some philosophical journal this week and reading about uh, one of the uh, really prominent atheists who just passed away not too long ago, and he said his statement was that we live for a brief moment and then we slip away into the dark abyss, uh, never to exist again. I mean, can you imagine how 
just discouraging that is. And to think about that, when you lose someone you love, to think, well, I'm never going to see that person again. Well, Job believed in the resurrection. He believed he would see his children again. He believed in the resurrection of, jet, of dead. Now, what Job didn't know that we know is that Jesus' resurrection is actually the guarantee of our resurrection. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, a real historical fact which changed the whole trajectory of the history of the world, all who are in Christ can also know for certain that they will be raised from the dead. The resurrection means that this life is not the end. We will be raised to new life. The resurrection means that we will see our loved ones again, those who are in Christ. The resurrection means, as we hinted last week, that there's a cosmic renewal ahead. God will restore total shalom. God will mete out final justice. And this had to be in Job's mind as he thought about the Sabaeans, as he thought about the Chaldeans, as he thought about those who had uh, come and taken everything from him. God will bring about justice. Now, the resurrection also means that we're not in our sins anymore. The resurrection was the evidence that Christ's sacrifice for us was enough, that our greatest offenses have been covered by Jesus. Forgiveness is ours. God's love for us is secure because of Christ, and the resurrection is the proof. At this very moment, if you are in Christ, it means not only will you be with Him forever, He actually, God actually loves you right now. He actually delights in you right now. He will never hold anything over your head against you. Christ's resurrection means our resurrection, which is in the future, and it means the fullness of forgiveness even now. Let me just close with a, I was thinking about this illustration. Um, some of you heard the name Tim Keller. Tim Keller has been influential in a lot of pastors' lives, and, and not just pastors, but people in general. And not long ago, I think it was probably a couple years ago, maybe not quite that, he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And, and I remember hearing him say on a podcast, and of course, you know, you're, that this is, few people survive very long with pancreatic cancer, and so he knew it was a death sentence of sorts. And he said he found himself, you know, high at times and low at times, but he said, ultimately, what I had to ask myself was this, do I really believe in the resurrection? Do I really believe in the resurrection? It doesn't mean that, you know, okay, great, I've got pancreatic cancer. But what it does mean is he could say, I, this is not the end for me. And I can know for certain that I will be with Christ and I will be with other believers forever and ever on a new earth where cancer can never threaten me again. And, and, and he said, this is what I keep thinking and coming back to when I struggle. Do I believe in the resurrection? If you're in Christ this morning... Uh, you have a great resurrection to look forward to uh, where you will inherit a new glorified body and you will be with your Savior forever. If you're not in Christ this morning, your resurrection is not something you want to look forward to because it will mean judgment and condemnation. It will mean being set apart from God, cast away from the presence of God for all eternity where there will be nothing but suffering and ruin. But that doesn't have to be the case for you. If you've not put your faith in Christ this morning, may today be the day that you embrace Jesus as Lord. You turn from your sin.
Confess your sin to the Lord and cry out to God for the forgiveness that He provided by sending His Son. Let's pray.